We've been talking about where are we going as a church, and I am so thankful for all of you, and I'm so thankful that you join us so regularly, and that not only do you join us, but that you are you are just actively engaged, building relationships, welcoming people, talking with each other. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to make a move from the place we were at before was just, it was so easy to kind of come in and do worship and leave, and it was a dark room, and it was a big room, and here we're together, we're kind of forced to be around each other, and that's a good thing for all our introverts in the room, um, but our goal as a church really is not to pack these pews. Our goal is not that we have the best worship services. It's not that we have the best groups or the best children's ministry, or the best youth ministry that we want to have. We want to do well. We want those to be meaningful, effective times when we do get together. Our hope is that we will be a community of people who love Jesus and love each other. And if we meet in um, a parking lot, or in a little grassy nook, or in someone's house, or in here, or in a big somewhere else, at the end of the day, really matters in life is that do we love God and do we love each other? And there's just a number of ways that we can do that. Each week we've been here, we've had a number of technical challenges. Today we had some significant technical challenges, and yet I'm really thankful for our worship team, for their flexibility, for their commitment to lead us in worship, and just reminding us that worship is not just about what else it sounds. It is it's about our hearts, it is about the time we spend together. It is your voice mixing with the person next to you, the person next to them, with everyone else in the room, singing praises to God and recognizing we are a blessed people. We're a blessed people who are loved by God. And he has given us everything we could possibly need to experience a full life. That statement may seem a bit extreme for some of you, so... These next few weeks, we are going to try to unpack why I think that's true. Uh, we introduced kind of a new mission statement. Uh, I'm not a big fan of mission vision statements anymore, uh, For at least for a church. I feel like that's already been set for us. God's already said, this is your mission. This is your vision. Just go do these things. What we do is we rework the words, and we try to make something that communicates what we're trying to do. And what we've shared with you is that our mission as a church, that Journey Church is a community of changed people who are seeking to be with Jesus or lead others to, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then to do what Jesus did. So like that is what it means to be a Christian. If we go back and look at the you know, kind of ancient Near Eastern what develop, way that you would develop a child and the way that you would grow someone in, in faith, uh, you would do that through a relationship between a rabbi and their students. And there would be kind of a layering of succession, just like maybe you graduate um, uh, elementary school, you go to middle school, you graduate middle school, you go to um, high school, you graduate high school, maybe you'll go to college, and maybe you'll go on to get your master's, and maybe you'll go on to get your PhD, and maybe you'll go on to do other things. Kind of theological, faith-based education and in the time that we read about in Scripture, was not unlike that. But you were able to progress based on your ability um, to do the work. 
And so every every child, at least every male child, and then some fe- uh, female children, we're, we are much more inclusive today than a patriarchal society was then, but it was also a very different culture, and there were also very different roles. And, and you know, most of us don't have to go out and wrestle a bear, you know, or we don't have to um, work out in the fields to make sure we have dinner on the table and, and things like that. You know, we can all equally share lots of things, but at that time, it was mostly boys that would go and have this education. And once they kind of passed the most basic understanding of uh, the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, then they would have a rabbi that would kind of observe them and watch them and say, you have a real knack for this. You understand it. You can memorize. Their expectation was you would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, I know that every one of you have also done that, so that's no big deal, right? All of you have done that. In fact, we could probably just bring any one of you up to quote any scripture in those first five books of the Old Testament, or the New, or five books anywhere in the Bible, or quite honestly, five books of anything anywhere. I'm sure we all have memorized that. But they would do that, and if you demonstrated a great knack for that, then uh, a rabbi would come along and say, I think you should go to the next level. And so if they went to the next level, then they would... They would spend time with that rabbi. And if you were chosen by a rabbi to follow them into this deeper level of teaching, uh, then what, there was a, a saying that uh, they would say to you, and they would say, may, the, may, the dust, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea is, is that we walk so closely with the one that we are learning from that the dust off of his feet is covering us. Because the goal of a rabbi-disciple relationship is that the disciple becomes like the rabbi. And what we know through the New Testament is that the people that Jesus chose to follow him were not people that were chosen for that next level of theological training. They didn't pass the test. They weren't good enough. They didn't memorize enough. They didn't understand it enough. And if you did it, then you just went off and worked. And you usually would learn your father's trade and and you would just go on about your life. And for a lot of the disciples, that was fishing. They would they just started fishing. And it's significant that Jesus came along and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come follow me. And they dropped their nets or their other ways of earning a living, and they followed him. This group of people that weren't good enough to cut it in Jewish theological education, but Jesus said, I have a different way. And so part of our goal through this series, The Way, the Truth, and the Life, is to recognize I love when we come to church. And whenever we go to the beach, uh, I don't know if you do this, like there's just a part of me that if we're there over the weekend, and I'm going to, like, I I struggle to sit in a condo or on the beach on a Sunday morning when you ought to be in church. Does anybody else struggle with that? Now, I know not many people understand that you ought to be in church, and I don't think that's an adequate description of what God wants from us. Uh, but I will sometimes look for a church, and I'll go. Now, no one else will go with me. Uh, but I will sometimes go, and and I'll go to church somewhere. I don't do that near as much as I used to, but every vacation I used to go, every time. But that's not really what Jesus is wanting from me. That's not what Jesus is really wanting from you. And as we come together into this space, what he's wanting from us is that we are going to become like him, just like a disciple becomes like the rabbi. And the good news that we've been talking about is that we can be with Jesus, not just now, but for all eternity. 
And he made that possible just because he loves us, because he loves you. And if you look in the mirror and you know all of your deep, dark secrets and you know every skeleton that's in your closet, you see that and it comes up. And most people, I think, give themselves a really hard time. I found that people who are incredibly critical of others, we assume that they never see their own faults. But I think more times than not, the person who is incredibly critical is the person who is also incredibly critical of himself. We know our own junk. We know our own problems. And, of course, God knows them as well. And he said, no matter what mistakes you made, no matter what problems you've had, no matter what's been done to you, I have a way that gives you freedom that you can experience a kind of eternal life, a quality of life, that life is good. And it is so upside down from the way that the world works that even when you are persecuted, you will find that you are blessed because you know God. Those are bold words. And I dare say most of us in this room have never truly tasted persecution. Maybe none of us in this room. I mean, I feel persecuted. But when I stop it and, and consider, like, am I, how does this really affect my daily life? It doesn't. But other things go wrong in life. Things don't work out the way that we hope. Someone gets sick, lose a job, friends that we thought would be friends for life, do something that hurt us. Or maybe we grow up in a family system and the family system is already unhealthy from, from being raised by another unhealthy system. And so now, we just feel like we, we're just a bundle of mess. And Jesus says, I want to enter into that mess. And I want you to know that because I love you, I'm going to make what feels broken and shattered and full of holes, I'm going to make whole and good. That is good news. And the, the good news is you don't have to do anything about it. I mean, you do not have to fix all the problems in your life for Jesus to say, I'm going to make you whole regardless. Part of that process that Jesus will lead you to if you come to a place to accept that good news is he's going to urge you to become like him. And the way that we do that is we learn about him and then we follow him. If anyone in here works in a trade, you probably did not um, get your employee badge and a bag of tools and a truck and told, okay, go fix this thing. Probably didn't work that way. You probably spent some period of time going with someone who's been doing it, that they trust to do it, and then they will slowly allow you to do more and more until they trust that you can do it too. There's a process of learning. And our relationship with Jesus is kind of the same way. We don't just receive the good news and now we've got everything figured out and all our problems have gone away. Instead, we begin to study and understand and learn, but more so we struggle with what it looks like to walk like Jesus. And we seek to have the dust off his shoes kicked up and cover us so much because we're walking so closely with him. So last week I shared quite a bit of that with you. And what I shared with you also is that throughout this series, our goal is not to give you a toolbox so that you're going to go out and say, okay, if I read my Bible so many minutes a day, if I come to church so many times a month, if I give so much percentage of my money, if I sing so many songs and really mean them, then all of a sudden you're going to find out like it's all just perfect and great and wonderful. That's not the fact that you're going. We're also going to assume that you know if you want to become like Jesus, you're going to have to read the Bible. 
Like, I'm not going to spend a sermon saying you should read your Bible. This is why it's good. You, we're going to assume that if you have accepted this good news, you want to know more about them. You're going to want to know more about Jesus. Uh, I'm going to assume that you're spending time talking with God in prayer. And no, none of us are good at it. None of us are good at it. Uh, but I'm going to assume you're doing that. Instead, we're going to be hitting some high-level topics for you to think about kind of big-picture things. And this morning, I'm going to go through somewhat... I'm going to go through this somewhat quickly, and I want us to take communion together, but I don't want to not give it its due justice. The problem or the idea that I want to share with you today, what it means to become like Jesus, is the idea of worship. And I don't just mean what we just did or what we'll do um, after I finish, but I mean, what does worship look like in your life? G.K. Beale is a guy who wrote a book by the title and then went on to explain exactly what he meant that said, we become what we worship. Worship is not just something we do to demonstrate devotion. Worship is the thing that prioritizes our life. And whatever we do to prioritize in our life is what we will become. What I mean by that is, if I worship acceptance, I need everyone to accept me no matter what. I will do whatever it takes for you to accept me, then I will become the thing that I worship. Someone who is just driven by the need for acceptance without any real understanding of, well, who am I truly inside? Let's say security is the thing you worship. And maybe that's because you grew up with zero security in your household. You never knew where the next meal was going to come from. You never knew if the lights were going to get shut off. You never knew if the car was going to start. You just had no security whatsoever. And so you worship security. And so you work day and night saving every dollar and putting it away as quickly as you can just so you know that you'll never be without. I just need that security. Then you will become someone who is solely focused on making sure nothing goes wrong in your life. And some of the best things that can happen to us in life are when things go wrong. I'm going to read a passage of scripture with you. You're familiar with it. It's Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, the, uh, the dichotomy that we're going to share today is worship versus idolatry. What kind of worship leads to a healthy life versus what is idolatry? which leads us to an unhealthy life. It says, when the people saw how long <laughs> excuse me, it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Now, this is where they have been delivered out of Egypt. They have traveled to Mount Sinai. And God has invited all of the Israelites to come up and join him on the mountain. Come be with me. And they all said, how, how about Moses will come? <laughs> Moses is going to go up the mountain. So Moses goes up the mountain by himself, and he spends time with God, and they're watching their clocks, not clocks, but they're watching the days go by, and they're wondering, what has happened to him? Where has he gone? Their security, which they have never felt security within their life, because they were a group of slaves, is significantly traumatized. 
And the one in which they have placed their hope, and the one in which they have placed their trust, which is Moses, who Moses would say, but we place our hope in God, that they have placed their hope and trust in Moses is not coming back and their security is in question and they desperately need someone to say everything is going to be okay. So when the people saw how long it was taking him to come down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. Now let's keep in mind what they've experienced so far. So far they have experienced God show up and bring them a savior. They have experienced miracle after miracle after miracle, and God has released them from their slavery. He has delivered them. He has saved them. This is a group of people that for a good three, four hundred years have been enslaved, and they have no real earthly possessions. And as they leave, Egypt gives them all their wealth. So this group of former slaves who has been delivered by the work of God within their lives and has also given them Everything they can need financially to make this journey and to establish themselves as their own nation. Then finds themselves at the mouth of the river and an army closing in behind them. And then we have this incredible story of the Red Sea parting or the Reed Sea as we discovered through our, our study of Exodus. And however all that worked out, they are delivered. And in no time whatsoever, because Moses has taken his time up on the mountain, what we know is getting the Ten Commandments. They don't know this. He knows this. But they get tired of waiting and they say, we need some gods to provide the protection and the security and the things that we need. Because typically what we worship is what we feel is our deepest need. And what's so hard about worship is most of us really could not name that right now if we were forced to. If I were just to come to you and ask you, what do you think is your deepest need right now? Like, I know what you would say. You'd be like, Jesus. Because that's what we're supposed to say in church, right? But I mean, I mean, outside of that. Like, what is your deepest? I don't, I don't mean what should it be. What is it? Most of us can answer that question. And most of us are actually better at perceiving what it is for somebody else than for ourselves. But what worship does is it is the thing that we completely prioritize our lives around, what we focus our attention and our thoughts on, our time, our resources, is that thing that we think is going to meet our greatest need. They said, they said, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses, this fellow, who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, you know, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it into a shape of a cap. And the people saw it. They exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the cap. There he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. We also have Aaron, who's number two to Moses, going, okay, where are you at, Moses? These people are getting upset. The people are getting unhappy. I'm kind of left here to lead. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, I'll give them what they want. I'll give them the security that they're looking for. Bring all your gold. We'll make a calf. And it says he got so excited that the people were so happy with what he had done, he took it a step further. That's what worship does. So they can sacrifice to it, yet all the time believing that this will be a festival to the Lord, which it's not. 
That's what worship, when we worship the wrong thing, does. We think it's going to meet our needs. We think it's going to be the thing. We think it's the most important thing in the world. And it ends up just causing us to decay inside. I told you some of what I'm sharing with you is coming from um, a pastor by the name of John Tyson. who wrote a book called Beautiful Resistance. This is what he said about idolatry. He said, idolatry is worship of, a, excuse me, of an unworthy object. The countercultural, excuse me, the countercultural revolutionary act is to direct our hearts' deepest devotion toward and only toward the Creator of our beings. True worshipers will worship the Father in Spirit and in truth. John four twenty three tells us. Right worship has the power to put our lives back on course, and in the process, expose the misplaced priorities of a culture gone rotten. Why are idols so deadly? Because they deceive, distort, and destroy. Heart idols distort our lives. Cultural idols distort our world. The theologian Christopher Wright said this. He said, God accepts that humans have indeed reached the creator-creature distinction. Not that humans have now become gods, but they have chosen to act as though they were defining and deciding for themselves what they will regard as good and evil. Talking about what happened in the garden. There lies the root of all other forms of idolatry. We deify our own capacities and thereby make gods of ourselves and our choices and all their implications. We become the thing that we think is going to solve all our problems. The Bible talks about this in lots of different places. Paul in Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The truth is we can be so blind to idolatry. We can worship an idol. Yeah, believe it is worshiping God. Worship is so central in our lives. You worship something. You, when you begin to understand that worship is done by every person on the planet, regardless of whether they believe Jesus is the Son of God, or if there even is a God, every single person on the planet worships. We find our kind of easy places that um, to point that out, <laughs> whether it be uh, I don't know how many Georgia fans are in this room tonight, but uh, their worship is very difficult today. <laughs> Alabama fans are feeling pretty close to God right now. They feel like so, for some reason God has shined down his grace and favor on the state of Alabama. You know, <laughs> Tennessee fans, I wish that we could be a part of an illustration like this. Let's be honest. <laughs> When we start talking about the playoffs and national championships, we have to talk about other people. Washington fans are really happy. Washington fans are really happy. There's all kinds of things. And, and the thing about worship is, rarely, rarely do we worship Satan, right? Like the ultimate evil in the world is like Satan worshipers. I mean, we don't even know who they are. But apparently they do all kinds of terrible things in the world, right? We've, we've created this group of people that are the 
the antithesis of who a Christian is, and we call them Satan worshippers. I mean, that's what we did. When I was growing up, I've never truly met one. I mean, I probably have run into one and not known it. Uh, but they don't go around, you know, grow their hair out, fashion into two horns, and you know, carry a pitchfork. That's not what they're doing. But the reality is, most of the time, we don't worship something that's really bad. We take something that's good, and we just put it in the wrong place in our priorities. I know it doesn't look like it, but I do like to go to the gym. And I have a lot of friends there, and, and we'll talk and laugh, and we'll look at people who are really in shape and go, that's nice. <laughs> but I know a lot of people that, I, that work out at my gym that worship fitness. And let's be clear, fitness should be everyone's it should be a priority for everyone. But when fitness becomes the priority, and every thought is on, what am I eating? Um, what, you know, what do I need to work out? What's an effective workout? What's the next thing I need to do? How do I look? Do these clothes make me look like I work out? You know, when every thought becomes that, it's a disproportionate place of priority within our lives, which is the way most of the things that we worship are. Security. I am not seeking to live a life without security. Believe you me. I want to know where the next meal's coming from, but I don't even want the next one. Like, I want to know where the next, like, 15,000 meals are coming from, you, you know? I, I want security. It's not wrong to want security or to work for the security of others. But when that becomes the thing by which we structure our life around, you will eventually take on the mindset that there's not enough stuff in this world that I need to take what I can get to make sure I'm taken care of. But when we worship what it means to become like Jesus, well then we start thinking about being generous and sharing and how can we help others and how can we be hospitable. Hard work, education, sometimes our hobbies. They just take a disproportionate amount of time within our lives because they have a disproportionate place of priority within our lives. I do know people that have this false sense of, of spirituality that says, my hobby is reading the Bible. I, I, honestly, that's great. I honestly don't think that's what God wants your hobby to be. Like, I think he wants that to be the lifeblood of how you relate to him and understand what he's doing in the world. But I, God wants us to go out and have a good time. Like, they want us to go to Disney, right? <laughs> but you can't structure your life about going to, around going to Disney. Like, we should go and work out or do something active. But we shouldn't structure our life around it. We should work hard. But we shouldn't structure our life around it. You know, part of following Jesus is recognizing what is most important in this world and how do I focus on the things that are most important in this world? And you're like, well, I don't know. You ask five different people, they're going to give you five different answers on what's most important in this world. And I would say, welcome to discipleship. Because part of being a disciple is not just that I say, you know, Tim, this is what it looks like and this is how you need to spend your day. That is not what discipleship is. Always looks like. A lot of time, discipleship looks like, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. What am I supposed to do here? I don't want to mess this up. It is that struggle, that wrestle, that seeking God, that asking questions, that 
okay, God, I thought this was a thing. Clearly it's not. Let me try again. That's the beauty about discipleship because we, we sometimes think if we don't do it perfectly the first time, Jesus is just ready to swat our hand and say, oh, you idiot. And yet when we first watched our children take their first steps and they stumbled and fell and didn't do it perfectly, did we go, oh, you idiot. I mean, I hope not. I hope you didn't. <laughs> Do we not just blow in the step that they took? Did you just see that? And they fall and we laugh and then, you know, we go downstairs after they tumble downstairs and bring them back upstairs so they could try walking. I mean, y'all probably didn't do that, but. <laughs> we. We reveled in the steps that they took. When we escape the shame-based way that we view God, we begin to realize that even a misstep taken with the desire to become like Christ, God looks at us as if we would look at our children taking their steps with glee, and we revel, and look at their taking a step. Believe that is what Jesus does when he looks at us, even when we screw up. And I think there's a lot of people that disagree with me and think that God expects us to do it right. And I think that in order to come to that place, you have to ignore pretty much all of Scripture. But I'll tell you, it's a very good way to run a church. You do this. You have to do this. And if you don't, you're bad. You will not find that in Scripture. Shame is an effective tool in the world today. We experience it at work. We sometimes experience it at home. Sometimes we've experienced it ourselves. We give it out. We don't even mean to give it out. But yet we've experienced it so much internally that we don't really have the framework outside of shame. And part of discipleship is moving outside that shame framework. Taking a really long time. We will worship whatever we feel will fill our deepest need. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles ask after all these things, and your Father, Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, I will say it would be nice if Jesus had get a little, get, given a little more clarification about what all these things actually are. Uh, because I think when we read this, we have a tendency to think all these things. Well, I could have the fitness, and I could have the working hard all the time, and I could have the security, and I could do all these things. And what exactly are these things that he's talking about that we can have all of them if we'll seek him first? What we find over and over again is he's talking about eternal life. And eternal life, again, I'm going to just say this over and over again, because the greatest injustice the church has done to the gospel is to say that eternal life is about life when we die. Eternal life is about the life that you live in this very moment. It's about the breath that you're taking in in this very moment. It's about how you interact with the person sitting next to you, about how you're going to interact with somebody if you go out to eat, or if you go to the store, or those of us in Saudi Daisy trying to get our mail, We've got some Saudi Daisy people here today. I'm getting a whole lot of mail right now. Yeah, our post office is completely locked up. 
don't have enough postal carriers and people are losing their stuff. Anyways, between having those moments, the opportunity to experience eternal life, we having those moments, the opportunity to retaliate, we having those moments, the opportunity to say, you have wronged me and I now want to hurt you because I feel hurt by you. And yet eternal life says, we are good. You are good. It's okay. We're going to make it. It's going to be all right. Now, of course, there's boundaries to everything. If somebody comes, you know, at my family with a, a knife or a gun or something, I'm not going to say it's okay. You're good. This is all fine. It's all going to work out. I mean, I'm, I'm going to step in in that moment. I mean, every analogy breaks down at some point. But in general, eternal life is found by people who engage with the world the way that Jesus engaged with the world. And there's a quality of life right now and forevermore. And so if I deeply wrong you, you do not have to respond in anger. The problem with responding in anger is not the actual response. It's the fact that inside, the angry person is dying. That's hell on earth. Have you ever been so angry and you don't want to be, but you can't get it off your mind and you're just so focused on it and you're thinking about it and you just want to do something with it, which generally means share it with somebody else and make them mad or, or hurt somebody else because I feel hurt. What we have discovered just through working with people, I don't know if you've ever heard of the anger train. The anger train, anger is the caboose, the engine driving the train is hurt. We typically get angry because we feel hurt. So eternal life says, even when I'm wrong, I'm just not going to sit here and be miserable. And I'm not going to just keep that on someone else because that will make me miserable as well. Tim Keller said that every person, religious or not, is worshiping something to get their worth. And that's true too. This is the thing that meets my deepest needs so that I feel like I belong. I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I deserve to be here. I feel like I deserve to live this life. We worship him to give us our worth. If you work hard, hard work makes you feel valuable. This fitness, your physique, makes you feel valuable. If it's getting the highest promotion at work, then your status at work becomes the thing that makes you feel valuable. And God would say, you are valuable simply because you are made in my image. You are mine. You are loved. You are valuable just because you exist. What would it look like to live in a world that we just, everybody we bumped into looked at us and like, hey, you're valuable just because you exist. Can you even imagine what that world would look like? Like every single person you came into, their commitment for the day was to demonstrate value of others. Can you imagine the kind of community that would be there? I mean, I think we'd freak a lot of people out if, if, like, when we come on Sunday mornings, we're not here to sing songs and listen to a sermon. We're here to just show other people how valuable they are to God and to us. I think we would freak some people out. And I think there's a whole lot of people that feel they have no value in their life, that they have no value in and of themselves, and so they would not know what to do with that they would freak out. But when you feel you have no value and someone says, no, you are good. It starts to heal these wounds. Oh, my God. 
What do we do? So what do we do? Worship over idolatry. This isn't my number one. I should have put this as number one. I, I think the number one thing is we recognize the goodness of God and, and that we are invited to, to know him and to become like him. He has number one. We recognize the goodness of God. God is not an add-on to the Christian faith. He is the central character of it all. He's good. He loves us. But what do we do? How do we, how do we figure this out? It's one of those sermons that can be, make you really frustrated, like, okay, so I'm lying to my own idols, and idols are a problem. I don't know what to do with this. What do we do? I think number one, we have to recognize our idols. Well, you just said we're blind to our idols. Yeah, I know. There's this wrestling part of faith. But I have found that asking the people that are close, thank you, Jeremy, for adding my extra slide there. One A, one B. <laughs> recognize our idols. Ask the people closest to you. Because we do typically do a better job of figuring out for other people. Like you talk about that all the time. Yep. Talk about that all the time. No. Yep. Recognize your idols. <laughs> Excuse me. That takes a, a level of self introspection and, and reflection. But it also is why mentorship is such a good thing. Someone who's walked that path and has spent their time trying to figure it out for themselves, and then they help you to do that too. The second thing is this. Acknowledge that even if they are good things, they're causing destruction in your heart and in your life. I'm not going to stop trying to create security for my family. But if that is the thing driving me, I've got to put that in the right order of priorities. And God is the one who has to stay. Becoming like him has to stay as the one priority. And then number three, once you recognize them, once you acknowledge them, even if they are good things, you have to turn from them. And this is the hardest step. That's even harder than the step one. <coughs> if I turn from the very thing that feel, I feel has given me value, how do I turn from the very thing that I think meets my deepest need? Because the problem with these idols that we think meets our deepest needs are that they never do. Finally, I would say this. Remind ourselves that we will become what we worship. So as we come here and we sing, our hearts are elevated towards God. But we should be doing that throughout the week. Because worship is not just an activity. It is a way of viewing the world. It's a way of understanding our priorities. It's a way of understanding what's most important to us. Recognize that what we are so finally focusing our attention on all the time, is going to change us. And usually for the worse. But all those things that we're focusing on. So when we come here together and we sing and we praise God, that, that is worship. But when you sit at home and you say, you know what? There are other things more important than thinking about my bank account. There are other things more important than thinking about the fact that I need to go to jail. I know this is hard to believe, but there are other things more important than going to Disney. Bailey's lost her. Lost her on that one. <coughs> and some of the others, too. There's something more important. I would say that if we're going to easily understand what worship is, it is having the right order of priorities in our life 
with the right amount of tension on each one. And you will spend a lifetime doing that. There are some things that I've, idols that I've worshipped that I've overcome only to replace with other idols. This is not something that you just figure out and then it's done and it's over. Following Jesus is this process. I would invite you to enter into this process willingly. And I want to invite you this week, not to walk out of here and go that way. But I want to invite you to try to figure out, to answer some of these questions that are the hardest ones to answer. What do you feel is your deepest need? Once you begin to identify what your deepest need is, you'll begin to identify how you're ordering your life and structuring around that. Is that actually leading you to a better place? will become more worship. We're going to take communion together and as we do that, it continues to remind us that the good news is good. That God loves us. That when he says uh, we are saved by grace, we are not saved by our works. It reminds us that what Jesus did on the cross was something we could not do in any form or fashion. That he did it for us because he wants us to experience this quality of life that is just good today and forevermore. So as we do that, this is an opportunity. Maybe you know what your idols are. It's time to confess those. Communion, a part of communion is confessing our sins and recognizing that we don't want to keep doing the very thing that caused Christ to have to be crucified. Maybe it is to confess that. Doesn't mean that you walk out of this room with a solution or that it's not going to be a problem. If it's truly the thing you worship, it's going to take you some time. Maybe we confess that and we give it to Jesus. And instead of, of expecting his indignation and his anger and his shame, we look at a God who looks down at us and says, Well, you're wrestling with the things you should wrestle with. This is the path to eternal life. Recognize that he is proud of those steps. He sees that you are good. Father, I